0: Welcome back, everybody. This is the Alpha to Zeta podcast with uh, me, Zach, and we have Andrew on the other line. How you doing, Andrew?
1: Doing well, Zach. How are you?
0: Hanging in there, man. We are uh, we're ending the near end of April, and life is you know supposed to be returning somewhat to normalcy in May. So, uh, still excited to meet with you. I know that we're not getting together, but we're still chatting over the phone and still uh, diving in the scripture together. And that kind of brings us to our fourth episode today, where we're picking up. Uh, you know, we we did our last podcast on Palm Sunday, uh, Passover. Uh, And then, you know, kind of the the ending challenge of like, who is Jesus, right? Like, who does Jesus think he is? Uh, And that kind of lands us today, which is where we're going to be setting up shop, which is part two of this series on who is Jesus. And so we're going to be talking about uh, Jesus before the high priest, Jesus before Pilate, Jesus' crucifixion. We're just going to kind of get into the nuts and bolts of it. But uh, I just kind of want to turn it over to you first, Andrew. What do you think? Of uh, This for, first place of Jesus being before the high priest.
1: Yeah. Uh, so <clears throat> where we ended, right, uh, Jesus is about to be betrayed, right? I think we stopped by talking about uh, Passover. So Jesus goes off. Um, to the Garden of Gethsemane, right, this is a very famous scene. He's arrested, betrayed by Judas, um, who who leads the authorities, or leads the the, the priest's authorities to him. And then he's brought before the high priest. Um, The trial scene is... Well, first of all, there's a couple of things that are interesting off the bat, the trial scene. Uh, Mm -hmm. It takes place at night. Uh, That's not supposed to happen. Um... I believe this is either this is either in the law itself in the Torah, um, the books of Moses, or this was just Jewish law at the time. I can't remember which. Mm-hmm. Um, but but in either case, this is an illegal meeting um, to be having a trial um, of someone for really serious crimes. Be doing it at night. I mean, it's the same reason we don't have you know, our own court cases take place at night. Right. Uh, you what? It's, it's a little shifty, right? Um, The proceedings here are going to be done under cover. The question that might come up, you know, is in the first place, why is Jesus getting the attention of the high priest? Mm -hmm. Um, Can you think of why, given what we talked about last time, might be the high priest who's coming down on him?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, Jesus stirring things up. I mean, he's come in the temple. He's cleansed the temple Is you know, obviously his triumphant entry into Jerusalem, uh, you have things that are starting, you know, to, to raise some questions amongst the Jewish community. You have a, a following uh, behind what is perceived as, you know, the coming Messiah, right? And so, uh, I think people are starting to wonder, like, is this the Messiah? Is this the King of the Jews? Uh, and as this happens, you know, and Jesus is kind of rebuking some of these Pharisees and Sadducees, you're seeing like the power starting to slip away and the control starting to slip away from the high priest, right? Um, yeah. And I think that's kind of where where it picks up for me when I really start to look at this story of like, man, if if we look at this as like a power struggle, that's yeah. kind of where these high priests have landed at this point in time in this trial.
1: Right, right. And so the high priest, is, I mean, his power base is the temple, which we talked about last time. The temple is this really important economic, uh, well, sort of an economic institution institution mm-hmm. and a cultural institution as well as sort of being the symbol of all of Judaism throughout the whole Roman world uh, making Jerusalem the home base of Judaism as it were and the, the priest his economic the high priest uh, mm-hmm. his economic power his authority um, his his station as probably this period the most important figure in Judaism in the Jewish world, mm-hmm. um, Jew, the Jews have a king here, one of Herod the Great's sons, right. who actually shows up in part of these these stories. Um, but he's kind of a he's kind of a bit player. Uh, his dad, um, Herod the Great, who had, according to the Gospels, tried to kill Jesus uh, in when he was little, when he was um, a toddler or mm-hmm. an infant, uh, he had been a real unifying figure uh, yeah. to. The, the Jews, as like the, the first real kind of king they'd had. And he was recognized by Rome. He was Rome's kind of sort of client-client king. Uh, the kings and the rulers of, of J- Judea uh, of, of Judaism in, in Palestine at this time are not nearly as, as powerful as, as Herod the Great had been. <laughs> and so the priest is probably the single most important figure. Like, if you're going to look for someone who's kind of like the figurehead of Judaism for Jews in this world, it's the high priest. And the, the base of that power, that authority, is the temple. Yeah. So that's that's sort of where we, we have this scene coming up. So it's Jesus – I mean, think about it. It's sort of like, you know, if you were to tell a story about, you know, an activist or something today, it wouldn't be so different from, you know, being dragged in front of, say, you know, in a religious context, someone like, you know, the Pope or the Dalai mm-hmm. Lama, um, or, you know, if we wanted to make it explicitly political, being dragged before uh, – President or something like that. Um, the high priest is not exclusively a religious figure. He does have, shall we say, p- political influence. Um, if, he, even if he's not exactly a ruler, um, but yeah, that's sort of where this is coming from. And so this is a this is a climactic scene in the story of the Gospels. It's a climactic moment uh, for Jesus after what he's done in the temple, challenging the authority of the priest uh, by by kind of challenging the temple institution itself. Mm-hmm. And that's what, what's got him here before the priest.
0: I think too, it might be important to add that, you know, by Jesus bringing this uprising, it really wasn't just a challenge to the Jewish people, but also to the Romans because uh, if, if my understanding of old Testament is correct, the high priest was appointed and, and supposed to serve that until death. Right. Uh, right. But this turned into more of an appointed position given by the Romans uh, so they could have control over this region, right? So, um, yes, very good point. Yeah, they they worked hand in hand, right? And so they didn't want an uprising because it was almost. Uh, you know, like a reflection upon their, you know, their religion to the Romans. So they, they kind of, you know, suppressed uh, any revolt that has happened. Um, they, they didn't want this to happen. And so uh, these religious le- leaders wanted them to co- cooperate with their policies. And so yep. you saw that uh, with this trial, it wasn't just like a, hey, we need to, to remove this guy for the church. It was like, hey, we need to do this because I'm a leader that was appointed by the Romans and I may lose that seat.
1: Right, right. It's a really good point, Zach. Um, the, the, this, the, what do we call it, the, uh, the office, we'll call it, of the mm-hmm. high priest had been a really pretty contentious thing for a few hundred years now, really since the Jewish people had come back from exile. Um, it had not really been executed according to the rules that had been set forth by Moses. Uh, it was now kind of a different institution, a different structure than it had been before. Um, it had been really intermixed with politics. So before the Romans, you have a kind of an independent Jewish state, right um, under after the the uh, Maccabean revolt. Um, and the, the the priests, the high priests are also the kings. <laughs> yeah, uh, which is not how it's supposed to be. Those are supposed no. to be. In in the, according to the way like the constitution that Moses sets out for Israel, those are really supposed to be two different roles. And there are even some moments in the Old Testament where kings start to sort of uh, imp- so we say impinge upon the prerogatives and the the role of that high priest. And God isn't happy about that right. uh, because these are supposed to be different institutions with their own lanes. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason for that, I think. Um, but, yeah, that, so it had gotten messy. Your, your point is very well made. And by the time we get down to Jesus' day, yeah, the high priest is in some ways answerable to these you know, external authorities, including, including the Romans. Right. Yeah, so, so where do you think that
0: takes us now that we kind of know the back history of the high priest, why he's having this trial? Where, where does that lead
1: us next? I think the most interesting thing here in this scene is where... I think this is all in the synoptics, if my if memory serves here. The, the priest says, at this point... Because they, they try this trial, and depending on the version you're look at, looking at, it doesn't really go very well. Uh, the, they try to pin these sort of false charges on Jesus. They, they try to, uh, you know... But, but, the, but the, the false... Uh, witnesses are not really agreeing with one another, they're confused, it's really kind of turning into a mess, and so, and Jesus like, isn't isn't like, he's not taking the bait, he's not answering, he's not, you know, messing with what they're accusing, uh, it's, it's just not working at, at this mm-hmm. point. And as I'm turning my, my pages here to, to get to the relevant um, portion in, in the book of Matthew, uh, you have Jesus here before the high priest Caiaphas um, uh, and before uh, the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is sort of the, mm. the, the ruling council that serves, well, it's sort kind of an odd body, but it's sort of the ruling council of, of Judea, of Palestine, but it's as much as a religious body in many ways. So. The chief priest, the high priest, the whole Sanhedrin, they're all, they're all here. And this is, I'm looking just at Luke 20, or sorry, excuse me, Matthew 26. i just sort of working on this. And so eventually the high priest, you know, J- Jesus is not answering the charges in, in verse 62. Uh, and then in 63, uh, <laughs> the high priest just says, okay, I charge you under oath. As uh, one some trans- translations will say, I adjure you by the living God. I'm calling upon God to make you answer this, basically. Uh, tell us if you are the Christ, right, the Messiah, um, right. the Son of God. Uh, so this is interesting. Um, first of all, it brings up an interesting point about Son of God. When I say Son of God, what do you, what you normally comes to mind when I t- start talking about the Son of God? Mm-hmm. Like, what what is that? Uh, what sort of person or quality or characteristics does that bring to mind? Someone that's under the Father, obviously.
0: Right. Divine instruction from God Almighty himself, the Messiah.
1: And you would think probably, I think most people when they say this, correct me if I'm wrong, but my my impression, especially when I was growing up before I'd studied this a little bit more closely, is Son of God is like second person of the Trinity, right? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Right, so you've got the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's not quite what this meant in in the original context. Uh, The Son of God... Uh, it was just a way of talking about the Messiah, actually, um, for a mo- for a reason we'll come to in, in just a moment. Um, so he's just saying, basically, are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? Or are you going to be that Messianic King uh, that, that many Jews of the period were expecting and, and, and looking toward? And so again, the priest finally says, "Okay, just tell us the truth, right? You know, are you are you this guy that we're expecting?" <laughs> Jesus has a very sort of well shifty answer here in, in some ways, that um, does, he doesn't, does he really come out and answer and, and say that he's the Messiah? Well, let's read it here. In, in this NIV translation, it says, yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied, uh, but I say to you all in the future, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. Well, that's, you no, know, not a simple yes, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, a simple yes would have sufficed. Yes or no, please. Um, that seems to be what the high priest is saying. And what's translated here as, yes, it is as you say, that is actually a slightly thornier, weird little, <laughs> what we call it a construction in yeah. Greek. It's, it's a turn of phrase that is sort of, I think, in, in Matthew and in the Greek, it says, you know, well, you said it, right? Um which is almost like, so this has been debated, what does Jesus mean by this? This phrase, like you said it, or it's, sometimes it's translated as, well, in your words, that's what you're mm-hmm. saying. Um, this is, appears in other parts of the Gospels on Jesus' lips. And as far as I know, it's the only, he's the only character who says something like this. But it, which, which almost gives me, like, the hint of truth here that actually Jesus was known for this little turn of phrase <laughs> that, that pe- and people remember, this, this weird thing. It's not a common thing in yeah. Greek that I've ever been able to, to find. But it was kind of Jesus' way of saying, okay, sure, like, you know, in your words, if that's sort of the options you're going to give me, right? If this is like a yes or no sort of answer, fine. You know, you, you, those are your words, not mine. But then he expands upon it, Right. Six, okay, fine. Yeah, it's that you said as you said it. You said it. It's your thing, but I but I say to you all, right? In the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand mm-hmm. of the Mighty One, coming on the clouds of heaven. Uh, so, what do you think's going on here, Zach, with this with this quotation here in sixty four? Um, so he's got this again, kind of weird way of saying yes. What's he tacking on here? Well, he's quoting previous scripture.
0: Um, I think you know the essence of this trial is not to have a fair trial it's to con- convict right so jesus knows that yeah. obviously in the garden of gethsemane he was weeping knowing the cup that he was about to drink and this is like he knows he's going to this trial where he's already pronounced guilty right. so he doesn't it doesn't matter what you say what you do you know that you know the hammer's coming down right. and he knows that he has to do this to fulfill uh, God's plan, and so by doing this, he's he's quoting you know Daniel seven, Psalm one ten, yep. Uh, and what what happens after
1: that? Uh, he's immediately you know accused of, of blasphemy, which is the the right. Which, which this now this thing has always how dare you quote scripture at exactly. me? Exactly. This is always <laughs> a reaction that puzzles me, and kind of like Jesus's little yeah. phrase um, where he's where he's sort of saying yes, but you know. You know, the the you have said it thing in Greek, you're saying it, these are your words. I think there's something we might be missing here. Um, But I can, we can try to do our best to get at what might be happening. Because let's put the situation together. So the high priest asks him, right? And this is a trial scene, you know, basically, I charge you under oath, you know, are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, yes. And most like sermons and stuff I've heard on this sort of topic, we'll leave it there. It's like, oh, well, he's, he's claiming to be the son of God, right? And that, is, that means he's claiming to be the second person of the Trinity. That means he's claiming to be mm-hmm. equal to God. That's where the blasphemy comes in. I don't think that's what he's saying. First of all, because again, that's not really what son of God meant. And because, as far as I can tell, there's nothing blasphemous about claiming to be the Messiah, right? You might be a lunatic. You might be kind of crazy or have delusions of grandeur. That doesn't necessarily... There have been lots of, like, failed messiahs already by Jesus' time, and there were many who, that came after him. Right. So I've always puzzled about what... I don't think it's the the, the part where he says, like, you said it. I don't think that that's the part... Because it also wouldn't make any sense for the priest to say that, right? Where he's basically saying, okay, tell us... you know." <laughs> yes or no? Are you a blasphemer? <laughs> right? It just as a question. It, it yeah. doesn't make any sense to me. Um, so I. Well,
0: it's it's just words, right? right. Like it's like these words aren't what's going to condemn you, but you know what he's saying is quoting Daniel seven, thirteen, and in my vision at that night I looked, and therefore before he was before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient days and was led into his presence, and it's. You know, Jesus predicting his resurrection. He's predicting, you know, his ascension and his return and the right. glory. And I think that is ultimately what they
1: were worried yes. about. Yes. <laughs> I, and I think, so I think you've hit the nail on the head. It's not this part where he seems to be saying, okay, fine. Because I kind of picture Jesus standing here. He, you know, he's bound. And he kind of rolls his eyes at the question. He's like, okay, fine. If those are the options you're going to give me, yes, I'm this Messiah. But I'm going to get add this extra information. And I think it's this extra information that gets the charge of, of blasphemy nailed on him. And so, yes, it is the Daniel 7 bit, this coming on the clouds uh, of heaven, um, where Daniel has this vision. Uh, first of all, this is where many of like the, the crazy monster scenes from Daniel come from. Uh, these beasts that come out, of the, these animals that come out of the sea, and they're really quite fierce and monstrous, but the Son of Man figure uh, which basically, in the old era, this is an old uh, Aramaic phrase. Uh, there are parallels in Hebrew, but in Aramaic, it's uh, "kavada nash," which is "one like a son of man," which basically just means he looks like he's a human being, right? What is a son of man? Uh, he's an or right. or, an, or in, uh, in Hebrew, it's "ben adam," you know, son of Adam. It just means he's a human being, mm-hmm. right? So this is a guy who looks like a human being. Um, but as we talked about in a previous episode, this figure was even in the original form of Daniel coming say coming on the clouds that that bit of business that is starting to borrow from the portraiture of Yahweh in the Old Testament no other figure in the Hebrew Bible has the what we might call this divine effulgence right this 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 cloud like um uh, aura about them except for God himself and so but here's this figure comes and then again in the previous episode we talked about how when this phrase when this passage starts getting turned into greek and translated we start getting bits of information about how people were interpreting this and the son of man figure mm-hmm. starts to look more and more like he actually is somehow being aligned with this ancient of days that he's like the ancient of days um, that he is somehow akin to the Ancient of Days, and he's sitting down to judge next to the Ancient of Days, right? And he's worshipped like the Ancient of Days, like like God himself. That does seem to be pointing to something that's like, okay, you quote that extra bit of information, and that's who you're suggesting you are? Okay, that explains to me then why that might be blasphemy. But there's also this bit from Psalm 110, uh, which is also mm-hmm. interesting here. Psalm 110, again, this is just from my NIV, goes like this. The Lord, that is Yahweh, said to my Lord, which in the language of the Psalms, when we talking about my Lord, is just a way of referring to the king, like the, the earthly king, the son of David. So the Lord Yahweh said to my Lord, that is the king, uh, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy majesty from the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord, that is Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush uh, crush kings in the day of his wrath. And it goes on for for a little bit. But the really important part that I want to draw on here is what says what says in verse one which is what Jesus is essentially referencing here. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And so when he says in Matthew, look, you're going to see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of, of power, right? Uh, you, you're, he's referring, I mean, that also happens in Daniel 7, but he seems to be also referring to this famous messianic passage. Psalm 110 was, was being interpreted as a, as a messianic passage in, in Jesus' day. Uh, sort of coloring the expectations of what the Messiah was and what he would be, um, and so here we have Jesus combining these two bits of scripture in order to give a fuller answer to what the priests seemed like uh, wanted in sort of a yes or no right uh, question. But Jesus is giving them giving them more, and so you can start to see why this might actually become a problem. So. Notice the, the bit about Melchizedek. Can you remind us who Melchizedek is?
0: I'm going to let you do that one. Okay.
1: <laughs> Mel, Melchizedek is a figure in Genesis, right? Just, he just shows up a little bit in, mm. in the story of Abraham, where Melchizedek, where Abraham goes out and fights this battle. He saves his cousin Lot. And Melchizedek, who we're told is the king of Salem, uh, which is usually associated with Jerusalem, right? So he's the king before uh, there are people before the Jewish people inherit the land of Canaan. Uh, Sort of like in the proto-Jerusalem, he's a king who we're told is also a priest of God, right? And and he's not necessarily Mm -hmm. like uh, a a Jewish figure. And if you go to the Book of Hebrews later, there's a great the author of Hebrews has uh, a big riff on this: how Jesus, how Melchizedek is a foreshadowing, a very deep. Um, and meaningful foreshadowing of Jesus because Melchizedek is both king and priest, right? So what Jesus is saying when he's quoting the bit about Psalm 110, sort of associating that with himself, he's referencing a psalm that talks about a son of David who is not of the priestly line of Aaron, right? He's not of the old, you know, the the Mosaic uh, Levitic um, high priesthood. He is a, he's a king and he's a priest who combines those two ways, or those two offices in a way that Moses had tried to keep separate, right? So he is superior. So, so if you can't, you know, it, it, we were talking about at the beginning. The high priest has all these sort of political and uh, sort of symbolic figurehead meanings attached to himself. And Jesus saying, look, I'm also, you know, not only am I the son of man, but I'm a, I'm a king and I'm superior to a priest. I'm a, superior, I, I, I'm a better kind of priest than you are. <laughs> and so you can see how this is like a, a direct stab right at the authority of the priest. And so I think well, it's, here, it's a divide, right? Yeah.
0: It's, you know, by him stating this, it's like, you know, you're either going to believe me, like I'm the salvation of this world, and you're going to trust me, or Caiaphas, like you're, you're going to condemn yourself not believing in me right. and it all kind of stems with the whole purpose of this trial is i mean you know sit at my right hand until i make your enemies a footstool he's basically saying like Caiaphas, i'm giving you a chance you're either going to believe me that i'm the son of a man or you're condemning yourself yeah
1: yeah and
0: that's that's the crux of this whole whole trial because i i think of this from like a personal standpoint right like uh, I, I read john 9 this week and you know Jesus heals the blind man and you know then the Pharisees and Sadducees ask him ten different or I'm sorry, four different times, four different ways who healed yeah. you. Right? And so it's like, I wonder in this trial, is there any way that Caiaphas would have changed his thought to think that Jesus is the Messiah? Hmm. Like, <laughs> do you think there's anything that could have happened that would have changed his mind at this point?
1: Ugh. <sighs> uh. No, <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm not throwing a curveball no, here, but yeah, no, that's that, like that's a
1: good question. I like it.
0: That's the human aspect of what we talk about the Bible, right? Like, it, there's an element of like you have to believe. You can have all the evidence, but I, I don't think there's anything Caiaphas wanted right. to believe.
1: Let's let's reframe this for a second. Let's say that yeah. Well, let's go back to our original premises with this mini series we're doing. Let's treat the Gospels not as like Christian special divine literature, which they, they may or may not be. But again, trying to speak to a wider audience. Let's just say this is the historical way, the historical means we have to accessing who Jesus was. Right. You kind of have to take the Gospel accounts or you have to try to read against their grain. And we've decided to try to read you know, basically with the grain of the gospel. What do they tell us? Right. Because there's really not anywhere mm-hmm. else to go. So as far as the, you know, Matthew and Mark and Luke, as far as they recount this scene, I don't think there's anything that could have changed their mind here, uh, that right. could have changed Caiaphas' mind. By, by the way, do you, do, you, does, do you have any idea what Caiaphas is related to? Like, is there, there's another name in the Bible, uh, or sorry, even in the New Testament, um, that, that this is very close to. And I think is actually, as I recall, directly related. This is a tough one. Like, who is he related to? The, the name Caiaphas. There's a very similar name that appears later after the Gospels. Do uh, you know what that might be? I, I I have it in the back of my head. I'm trying to remember it. Uh, uh, <laughs> Cap- um, Cephas, right? Cephas. Cephas. Yeah. Which is Peter, right? Which is just Aramaic for the rock, right? So it's kind of funny that Jesus names his own, like, second, you know, in command, his right-hand guy. <laughs> he names him after, you know, gives him a nickname that's pretty close to the high priest himself, right? Which is just, Caiaphas is just a, a you know, version of of Cephas, which is the... Uh, or kefa, actually, is what it is. I need to learn Greek, Andrew. I'm sorry, man. I'm I'm way behind. Oh, <laughs> oh no! This is this is something that I, I, I would never have seen or made the connection myself. I had to I, yeah, I, I had right. to have one of my professors point this out. Um, who, who works you know in these, especially the Semitic languages. But it's just a fun little um, yeah. uh, tidbit here. But anyway. I think this is the most... This explains why Jesus... I guess the the point about the scene with the high priest, if there's, like, a a real punchline here, is that Jesus is, again, being pretty aggressive. This is not, like, nice Jesus who, you know, would never, like, harm a fly, who just sort of this milk toast kind of, far, pale, the, some people, some scholars refer to Jesus as like the pale Galilean, who kind of has this far-off stare in his eyes and he was kind of this otherworldly ghostly, no, 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 this is a guy who was is, who is very flesh and blood who was kind of an aggressive guy, right? He's got a reason. Yeah. He's got a mission. He's on a mission. And he's going to tell you what's up to your face, um, even if you happen to be the high priest of, of Israel. And mm-hmm. so I think that's, that's a really, again, getting at this question, who was Jesus? Well, he's a guy who would take on someone like, like the high priest and, and also not just say it directly. I mean, he'll, he'll be witty about it too by weaving together scripture that, you know, is an illusion that his his opponents will get. And I think that's explains why he, he's accused of blasphemy here. Yeah. But
0: rightfully so, like he knows, like, you know, I'm quoting, You know, Psalm one ten. Like I'm I'm going to, you know, I'm quoting uh, Daniel seven. Like I, I will be back. I will return, and and you will know. Um, And so that kind of leads us into you know the trial before Pilate. So there's two trials. There's one before the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees. Uh, It's kind of staged. You know, we're just here to condemn you. They didn't have like any eyewitnesses like coming and sharing the the miracles that Jesus had done the past three years. The things that he prophesied like. They they weren't interested in that. They wanted a guilty plea. They wanted to keep keep them moving. Uh, why though? Like, why didn't the Jews just kill them themselves? Why why hand them over to Pilate?
1: Good question. Uh, partly, uh, I mean, there's a lot of things we could we could bring to the table here about what what the motive is. The the simplest one seems to be that they can't deal with Jesus the way they want. Uh, the, the Sanhedrin and the high priest don't have the power to execute people. Um, this is, gets into some of the intricacies of Roman law in this period. Uh, in the first century, the Roman law does not apply uh, to all places at all times. It's only supposed to be applied to citizens of the empire, which is usually an advantage to those citizens if you think of Paul. Like Paul once as he used his Roman citizenship as a legal advantage, and not uh, you know, it, it, it puts it in his court, right? The ball becomes in, in his court, so to speak, to mix metaphors. Um, but in this day and age, Jesus is not a citizen. Most of the people living mm-hmm. in Judea are not citizens, and so it's often very sketchy about what sort of power can be. Basically, Pilate has a lot of latitude here, um, but he the the Roman authorities maintain the the prerogative the right to put people to death that the priests can't do that so in the book of acts where the disciple not a, well he is a disciple in the general sense, but he's not one of their general apostles stephen the first martyr when he is killed by the sanhedrin right the same group before whom you know jesus is condemned you know he's stoned but that's a lynching right that's not something that is uh guaranteed by uh sort of roman authority it is actually breaking the rules, uh, and so Stephen apparently had ticked them off even more than Jesus did. It probably <laughs> here. Here, there's the another reason. Uh, Jesus's claim to be the Messiah, you know, does intersect him with Roman interests here, which is if you're making those kind of claims, like the Romans know that. <sighs> The, the, I mean, I've just read a bunch of books on on Judaism in the um, first century, and the, the preceding centuries. They're kind of known to want to do their own thing, both culturally and politically. Um, on a good day, typically the Romans have sort of ignored them uh, and, and maybe snickered at them. At other times, it really annoyed them, especially when, you know, they, they realized that the Jews did have their own aspiration to be their own people again, and were not, Kind of going with the flow, the rest of the Med- the way the rest of the Mediterranean world did, uh, and so Jesus claims to be you know Messiah, uh, to be the Anointed One, Son of David, to be a king. Like that's what Pilate asks him directly in, in John. Uh, you know that you know, okay. Like Caiaphas is like fine. We'll, we'll send these guy this guy off to deal with Pilate, and Pilate will take care of it. That way we don't have to take the flak. For it right we as the priests don't have to annoy all of Jesus followers right he was just acclaimed you know, a few days before coming into the city yeah you know, we won't we won't be the ones you know responsible for you know, having his blood on our hands it'll be the Romans um, and yeah Passover has something to, to do with that too this is a very touchy time the city right. the city is packed with people often you know if you're the sort of person who is traveling to Jerusalem to swell the numbers uh, if you're coming from overseas, which many would have, uh, you are probably a pretty serious Jew, right? You' are a devote you're a devout. <laughs> you take your identity very seriously. You take the symbolism of Passover probably quite seriously. This is a touchy time, and I, the the priests probably yeah. want to sort of schluff this off to, to Pilate to make him. not only is he the proper authority, um, but he's you know, they probably would rather him deal with it you know any day of the week anyway. There's also the fact that you pointed out the high priest is a kind of client of Pilate and the Roman government to begin with. So he's just, he's just kind of a toady of these other authorities. You know, but, well, the toady k- kicks it up the chain. and I think that's that's kind of what's got Jesus going before Pilate here. It's, it's a combination of things, but it, it makes sense uh, in a lot of ways. Right. Yeah. And I think it's it's also
0: fascinating to point out that the Jewish leaders accused Jesus of three different crimes here. Uh, the first one, they they claimed that he was guilty of misleading the Jewish people, right? Yep. That he was blasphemy, uh, forbidding the paying of taxes. Oh yes. Uh, with the the temple, and then the last one, which I think that is really what struck the nerve of Pilate, was claiming to be a king. Yes. Because he didn't really seem to address the other two in that conversation with Jesus. It was more or less, "Hey, are you really claiming to be king right now? Because if you are, then you're challenging the Roman king." Right. You're challenging the Roman Empire, and therefore I have a play in this now. Like I – you know, they were very serious about revolutionaries. Yep. They didn't want to rise in an upbringing. And so that I think was the charge that kind of threw, uh, threw Pilate overboard to say I need to get involved. But um, I have a real – like as I'm rereading this story, I just got to ask you Sandra Andrew. I know we didn't prep this question, yeah. but like why did Pilate's wife have a dream? You know, yeah. we know that God speaks in dreams. Yeah. We know that we have dreams for divine appointments to kind of correct uh, our path in the world, or perhaps warn people. Uh, and it seems like, you know, this is a relatively really smooth trial. You know, he's guilty already. Let's just hurry up and rush in the pilot. But Pilate's wife has this dream uh, of the Son of Man. Um, you know, just just being hurt, and you know, he goes to Pilate and warns him, like, "Don't execute this man." Right. And I'm wondering, like, why Why was that thrown in this? Like, it's like a little glitch to the story of, like, was God really trying to change the narrative here? Or what was really the purpose of Pilate's
1: wife having this dream? What are your thoughts? Right. This is from—remind This is uh, remind me, this is John's account. Is that right? Uh, I'm reading— Mainly that the, the— Yeah. Okay. I, I'm just turning there because I, I, that's an, it's an important detail, but I want to make sure I'm looking at the right spot here. Um, so— yeah, John tells this whole thing, as he often does, differently from, from the synoptics. He adds some other you know, details to, to all of this. Um, so with the, with the, the bit about uh, Pilate's wife, we have to sort of, well, first of all, we have to just trust the, the gospel accounts here right. um, to answer this question, right? Well, this is the sort of thing that if you're a skeptic, you're probably not going to believe this happened anyway, uh, you're going to have to, like, establish a little more credibility with the Gospels before we jump to this. But let's assume we have, right? Um, let's assume, as a Christian, you want to know, why is Pilate's wife having dreams and be warning both of them to leave Jesus alone? Mm-hmm. Um It's a good question, isn't it? I I think (laughs) we can always come back to it. It's a kind of a
0: curveball question, but as we have these discussions, it's like, man, like if we're really diving into scripture and wrestling, we need to. We just maybe need to present these things. So that's why I brought it up here.
1: Here's how I see it. I tend to think this is probably from God in some sense. Um, There's also just the fact that the, the Gospels present this moment, this climax uh and i think this is again from john if my memory serves that this is uh this is the moment um where uh, where you have uh like or evil like as like clearly in john's like god like john says that you know, satan himself enters into Judas. <clears throat> um, you have jesus striking out against these institution they're worldly but they are institutions with a lot of spiritual significance behind them uh, and you know Jesus says in one of the Gospels like this is the this is the hour of darkness right this is your hour right. um which uh, and again read read Daniel 7 right and what does Daniel 7 say about like kind of this, this there's a there's a battle going on it's not just that this Son of man figure comes before God. It's that there are all these dark, kind of demonic powers that are running the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, are they, they? They seem to overlap with political entities, which is exactly what we've got going on here. So there's a one of the things about apocalyptic literature, which, which Daniel definitely is, which D- Jesus is drawing on, you know, through through much of his ministry and especially here in this uh, sort of last few days of his life. He D- Daniel and the and these other apocalyptic authors. Part of what, what the apocalypse just means, like a, a revelation, a revealing, a pulling back of the curtain. So, what do they tend to? Sh- what was the curtain that tends to get pulled back in these sorts of uh, these sorts of apocalyptic moments? Well, it's that there's this whole like spiritual economy, a whole spiritual machinery. Some of it good, you know. There are angels in Daniel, like you know Michael and Gabriel. Uh, there are others that are a little less. Uh, um, shall we say benign, <laughs> think of the beasts from, think of the fourth beast especially um, from, from Daniel 7, which are monsters that oppose God and oppose his people. And so with something like this at the dream, what I think the Christian response to this is, there's just a lot of like spiritual turmoil going on right here. Um, and that there's a lot of spiritual, energy sounds too like kind of new agey, that's not really what I mean. But the, the, there's stuff happening, right? And yeah, you would kind of imagine, kind of like how, how Jesus, this stuff follows him around anyway, right? People are healed, boom. Like, kingdom kingdom of God is with you. He's offering people, you know, physical healing. He's casting out demons. Not only is he casting out demons, demons often, like, come, uh, demon-possessed people, come seek him out, right. right? And so this is just that moment taken to the max. And I think that, you know, God, perhaps, is, is warning in this process, Pilate and his wife, uh, to, to try to not have anything to do with this, to, to not condemn Jesus, to m- give them a chance, right? So this obviously, I think, then raises the question, like, well, could this have played out any differently, right? Could Pilate, and yeah. you know, say, have let Jesus off and then had been you know, innocent in this? I tend to think so, right? I think God can work out His purposes through any numbers of way, any number of ways. I think it probably still ends with Jesus dying somehow. Um, does it necessarily mean He is going to die on a Roman cross? Maybe not. I, again, I do think God tends to give us free will, so maybe what God is trying to do here is give a kind of prophetic warning yeah. um, to to Pilate and his wife. Uh, that's about the best I can I can give right now. But I think that's that's my speculation and knowing. Kind of what my my principal theological principles are. That would be my guess.
0: Yeah, I mean this this you know it's Matthew twenty seven verse nineteen is where that pops up. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his uh, wife uh, sent yeah, him yeah. this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man. So she's she's already yeah. proclaiming his innocence. Uh, you know, if two become one when they get married, his his other half is pro- proclaiming like you need to wash your hands of this. And then she says, for I have suffered a great deal today in my dream because of him. So very targeted warning to her husband who is magically sitting on the judgment seat. And this is the exact point where he's trying to decide between Barabbas and Jesus. And so I, I think it like, I I don't know. Those are the kind of questions that, you know, scripturally you wrestle with because it's like, this is obviously part of God's plan. But why why, he, go ahead, go ahead. But why send a warning to Pilate's wife? So, God, I'm sorry. That's all I had.
1: But I always wanted to add, Pilate is a known figure. Most of the time with our information yeah. about individual figures or episodes that happen in the Bible or in the Gospels, we don't have much we can, like, triangulate with other bits of Scripture. Pilate, however, is known from the other historians mm-hmm. of this period, like the Roman historian Tacitus. Yeah or the Jewish historian Josephus, um, he was known for liking basically to stick it to the Jews in any way he could, um, liking to antagonize them, uh, to, uh, say, march uh, blasphemous symbols, right? You're not supposed to have uh, images. And Pilate appears to, depending on which version of this you read, um, I think this is also from the Jewish uh Writer Philo also talks about this. Uh, Pilot tries to get um, uh, some sort of like political imagery set up in the temple. Now, for all sorts of reasons, that's just a bad idea <laughs> um, for for this this intended audience. Yeah. Um, and but he seems to have like known about this sort of thing. Like he kind of knew that he was this was going to be a problem, and seems to have liked to stick it to them anyway. Uh, so maybe. I mean, so Pilate is kind of—he's not a, like—here's he, he, a little another tidbit in this. Later Christian tradition, especially a sort of anti-Semitic tradition, mm-hmm. tried to wash Pilate's hands of this, much the way that Pilate, you know, figuratively washes his own hands yeah. in the story. Uh, Pilate, in later Christian legend, uh, which is—I want to emphasize—legend. I don't think there's any sort of historical— like source material that's reliable, they're drawing on here. Um, it's way, way after the fact. We're talking hundreds of years afterward. Uh, they imagine that Pilate himself later became a Christian and a martyr. Hmm. Now, I suppose that would be nice in, in some way or another, but it also tries to portray him as someone who, but, you know, he's just in, he's in a tough situation and he just, you know. He, you know, he wasn't trying to be a bad you know, guy, but, you know, he just, he was pinned between the wall and a hard place, and this is just, he made a bad decision, and it haunted him, and he eventually became a Christian and got forgiveness. Eh, okay, let's actually stick with the sources that I think are a little bit more historical mm-hmm. here, like Tacitus and Josephus and Philo. Pilate was not a great guy. Um, and was a guy who. I mean, it's weird that they picked a governor who again liked to stick it to the people he's trying to rule, but he did. Uh, by all accounts, um, and so yeah, Pilate himself is a is a tricky figure. Um, who again, he, he knew what he was into. He was not some sort of you know delicate flower who just hey you know, woke up and you know in this controversy on his hand the next day. Um, he's very much sort of enmeshed. Uh, Let's put it this way. His hands are actually quite dirty in in the general situation with the Jewish people. He was in the power seat, right?
0: Like, he was not afraid of the Jewish people. He's not afraid of, like, any of this stuff. He didn't really believe in the Jewish tradition, so it was kind of... Uh, more or less, his duty to to right. please the king rather than anyone else. So yep. uh, he's sitting in a place of power. As you know, we read back on this in hindsight. Like, man, he he should have been scared. He didn't know yeah. the risen Christ was coming. Like, so it's you know, in his you know present day, he was yep. the most powerful person in that city. Right to him and yep. to everyone else that was there.
1: everyone. We decided this would be a good place to press pause. The conversation we had kept going and going and we felt like we were hitting good quality material, Uh, but it was getting a little long in the tooth. Um, So we decided this was a natural uh, place to divide this conversation into two different episodes. So this is the end of episode one. Uh, the We might say this episode was part one of part two of this, this mini-series um, about who is Jesus. And I know it's a little confusing, but the next episode will be part two of part two in this mini-series of three about who is Jesus. And we will continue in the next, the next episode with the themes of cultural resonance of the cross. What did it mean to a Jewish audience? What did it mean, especially to a Roman audience? What did crucifixion entail? Um, and we will pick up the conversation there.